0: The kingdom is spreading, Oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory, as waters that cover the sea.
1: Acts chapter 10, verses 24 through 43. Acts 10, beginning in verse 24. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell under his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go into one of another nation? But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. "'Send therefore to Joppa, and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. "'He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. "'When he comes, he will speak to you. "'So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. "'Now therefore we are all present before God to hear these things commanded you by God.' "'Then Peter opened his mouth and said, "'In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day, and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people, and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. In the last two studies, we have witnessed two amazing works of God. One in the house of a Gentile named Cornelius, the other in the house of a Jew named Simon the Tanner. One involved an angel visiting a Roman soldier, The other involved a vision, educating a Galilean fisherman who had become much more than that. And these two remarkable events were designed to move men into a position they would never have otherwise occupied, unaided. The Lord was bringing the Apostle Peter, a follower of Jesus Christ and leader of his church, but all the same a scrupulous Jew in the way of thinking that dominated what scholars call Second Temple Judaism, the form of Jewish thought that developed after the return from Babylonian exile, on a vital journey of understanding. In the Second Temple Jewish way of thinking, it was, as Peter will say in a moment, unlawful for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But of course that way of thinking ran contrary to Jesus' great commission, for the apostles to carry his gospel his witness, and the fullness of his kingdom to all the nations. So God had to do something about the situation. And so he was. After Peter received a vision in which he was very hungry and wanting food and was supplied with a sheet full of unclean meat from heaven and told to kill and eat it, and after he refused on grounds of loyalty to God but was told that in fact refusal was rebellion against God, for Peter ought not to call common what God had cleansed. After all of this, Peter came out of the vision to find that three men had arrived at the house where he was staying from Captain Cornelius, and he had been called to his home in Caesarea for a divinely arranged preaching appointment. So Acts 10.23 says, On the next day, that is the day after the messengers from Cornelius came to the house at Joppa, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Acts 11 verse 12 says there were six brethren who traveled with Peter, and whether or not it was customary for the believers in those days to travel in groups. In this case it was reasonable that Peter should take them along, or that they should see the need to accompany him. The whole situation was very unsettling and unusual, so much so that it required a direct revelation of the Spirit for Peter to be able to participate in it without misgivings, Clearly, God was at work, but these brethren would be able to serve as witnesses to whatever great thing might be about to transpire. Verse 24. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. Earlier in the chapter, we learned that Cornelius' piety was shared by all his household. Evidently, he had taught it and passed it on to them but the exact composition of Cornelius's household is difficult to estimate. At this point in Roman history, there was a law prohibiting marriage and family life during active military service, but it seems that the law was generally broken and found to be essentially unenforceable. Some have suggested, based on the sort of character the Bible ascribes to Cornelius, that if this was the law, he would certainly have followed it, but that is not necessarily so. We're going to speak more about the justness or righteousness of Cornelius in a moment, but for now we may simply state that he certainly was not sinless or flawless, for according to the angel, he needed to be saved like everyone else. Thus, relatives might have included a wife and children, but perhaps not. Perhaps it was cousins or simply other Italians, and the close friends would include perhaps local Jews, to whom he had come to learn about the God of heaven or with whom he had developed a relationship because of his devotion. Whoever they were, they gathered because, like Cornelius, they had an interest in what they believed would be a message from God. Verse 25. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, "'Stand up, I myself am also a man.' This belongs to a species of challenging passages that appear throughout several books of the Bible, in which a person does something to another person that is called worship, but there is a great deal of difficulty in ascertaining just what was taking place, or what the worshippers' intentions and motives were. The word worship comes from the Greek proskneo, which may simply mean to bow down or to show obeisance to someone. It can refer to that form of reverential adoration that is only rightfully given to God, but it can also refer to a sign of respect that does not necessarily translate to idolatrous devotion when shown by one creature to another. In this case, it seems very unlikely that Cornelius was worshiping Peter in an idolatrous way. It is true that he was a Gentile, but he feared God. What? that could mean that he saw the God of Israel as the greatest of all gods and was heading in the right direction but a long way off, I think his reputation among the Jews would indicate that he was a monotheist. And if that was the case, he was probably simply showing respect to Peter in a way that even shy of religious devotion would have been very striking. An officer in the occupying army bowing down to a socially insignificant person from the occupied people, But all the same, I think Peter's response to Cornelius' action is very noteworthy and meaningful in its applications on the Christian faith. Peter rejected this kind of honor. I know of no occasion where a disciple of Jesus accepted anything like it. Jesus did, and never rebuked those who offered it to him again, regardless of what their Christological understanding was, but Peter and the other apostles and even the angels of heaven, according to Revelation 19.10, would not accept it. In modern religion, when religious leaders not only tolerate but endorse or even demand this kind of display toward them by other disciples, the apostles would most certainly regard them as receiving an honor that is only due to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and not to a man or any other creature. Verse 26, And as he talked with them, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. The word unlawful in this passage means, according to Gareth Reese in his Commentary on Acts, contrary to custom, or a violation of an established way of doing things. In our last study, we discussed the background of Second Temple Judaism and the extreme emphasis that form of Judaism, which really developed during the intertestamental period, placed on the maintenance of Jewish identity by remaining separate from the nations through circumcision and exclusive table fellowship. This development was designed to prevent their relapse into the covenant rejection that characterized them before the Babylonian captivity and, in fact, led them into it by their indulgence in all the evils of the Gentiles, especially idolatry. However, it was very much an overreaction, and it caused them to no longer fulfill their God-given role as a light to the nations in passages like Isaiah 42, six. But instead, they became despised by the nations and accused of misanthropy, that is, of being men-haters. Here's a passage from the Roman historian Tacitus, reflecting the general attitude toward Jews in the Roman Empire. From Annals of History, 5, verse 5, "...they regard the rest of mankind with all the hatred of enemies. They sit apart at meals, they sleep apart." And though, as a nation, they are singularly prone to lust, they abstain from intercourse with foreign women among themselves, nothing is unlawful. Circumcision was adopted by them as a mark of difference from other men. Those who come over to their religion adopt the practice and have the lesson first instilled in them to despise all gods, to disown their country, and to set it not parents, children, and brethren. This is, of course, an extremely antagonistic and in many respects unfair judgment, but it reflects the disposition that Peter himself admits in his words to Cornelius. The major point here is that the law of Moses, while insisting on some degree of separation, did not call for this extreme prejudice that had really become an instrument of self-righteousness with many of the Jews, as we see in the ministry of Jesus, and as will come up later in discussions in Acts and in the Christian Scripture. So what Peter means is that his countrymen and neighbors would not tolerate him to do this. They would have thought, as he would have previously, that this was an act of disloyalty to God. But, Peter continues, God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. God showed him that by the vision on Simon the Tanner's rooftop, in which Peter learned or began to learn The old law had been abrogated by the work of the Messiah. Several times after the vision, the Bible says that Peter was wondering within himself what the vision which he had seen meant. But now he has reached the proper interpretation and is being led by the Holy Spirit to apprehend a very important principle of the Christian faith that through the Messiah, God's holiness was to spread throughout all nations, not the Jews only and that all nations would be called to loyalty to God by submitting themselves to the lordship of his Son. At this point, that apprehension is not complete. As Reese suggests, Peter has perhaps only gotten far enough to realize that association with Gentiles is not disloyalty to the covenant, but the Spirit continues to work and lead him further in his understanding. Verse 29. Therefore I came without objection, as soon as I was sent for, I ask then, for what reason have you sent for me?" This is an interesting question because the messenger already told Peter that Cornelius was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you (Acts 10:22). But perhaps Peter finds this difficult to believe, or simply he wants to hear more information from a first-hand account of things. Perhaps Peter himself is wrestling with the question of why he was called for not only by Cornelius, but by God himself, when there were believers like Philip in the city already. Verses 30 through 33. So Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa, and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. At this point, perhaps the eyewitness first hand testimony and its congruence with the earlier testament of the Holy Spirit pushes Peter over the edge. Now his understanding is essentially right where it needs to be. He realizes that the world is full of men and women like Cornelius, and as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he has an obligation to these people according to the will of God. They are present before God to hear all the things commanded by God. So how can there be any more delay or uncertainty? Verse 34, Then Peter opened his mouth. Remember that phrase from Earlier accounts, like Philip's sermon to the Ethiopian, it implies that Peter is speaking authoritatively, and he said, in truth I perceive, the New American Standard Version says, I most certainly understand now that God shows no partiality. This does not mean that God has no judgment. Peter will in fact conclude his sermon with the truth that God is the judge of all men, both the living and the dead nor does it mean that God does not discriminate between lifestyles and ideologies, nor that all human beings have the same responsibilities or opportunities or privileges in every respect. This statement is in contrast to what Peter has just stated about the customs and beliefs of his own people and up until recently of he himself, the belief that in order to be loyal to God one must become a Jew. Peter now sees that God does not agree with this, but rather... As he announced to Israel at Sinai, even though they were a special treasure in his purposes to redeem mankind, all the earth is his, Exodus 19 and verse 4. So Peter continues, But in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. What Peter says here is in perfect harmony with the teaching of Paul in Romans 2, 25-29. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. The fullness of Paul's teaching is perhaps not expressed in Peter's words, but the essence of it is certainly there. Justification before God is not the heritage of a certain nation. It is the possession of no one but the perfect law-keeper or the pardoned sinner. But of those, any person from any nation may enjoy it. Peter is not acknowledging that Cornelius was justified before God by his works. Again, we must remember that the very reason he was called to this man's house was, according to Acts 11.14, to tell him words by which he and his household would be saved. Rather, Peter is stating that the Jewish mindset to which he had previously been party, that God had a special fondness for those who were circumcised and an ambivalence, if not a hatred, for those who were not, was incorrect. God was looking for men and women who were looking for him, wherever they lived. And the evidence of a seeker after God was not a mark on his flesh, but rather the quality of his life. Did he fear God? and seek righteousness as much as within him, by working righteousness. That is, doing righteous deeds that he knows please God. That was the important question. Cornelius does not fit into a Calvinistic view of the Christian faith. He was, without controversy up to this time, an unregenerate man. But he sought God from pure motives and wanted God's justification. As a sinner, he could not get it on his own, but he wanted it, he prayed for it, he worked for it, and God took notice of him and blessed him with the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. After disagree with and protest against the suggestion of J.W. McGarvey regarding Cornelius' condition, he said under the former dispensation, the piety and fidelity of Cornelius would have given him an honorable place among the holy men of God but this alone would not suffice him now. Jesus Christ had stepped in between God and man and opened through the rent veil of his flesh the only access to God. My issue is with McGarvey's suggestion that the ministry of Christ was a problem for Cornelius, something that moved him from a state of justification to a state of condemnation. Perhaps that's not what he meant, but it seems to be the meaning of his words, and if so, that is terribly incorrect. Jesus said in John three seventeen God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, and the angel who announced his birth called it glad tidings of great joy to all peoples, Luke ten or rather Luke two and verse ten. I don't have all the answers about how God justified men and women in the nations under the old dispensations, but Whatever the case was, not only the message of Christ, but the ministry of Christ was good news for them and for all, and the only salvation to Cornelius and to everyone else. Sometimes modern believers put forth a very anthrocentric or human-focused gospel in which the only really important matter is keeping people from going to hell and getting them into heaven. But this is not the gospel of the Bible. The Gospel of the Bible is first and foremost concerned with the glory of God. Thank God that His glory includes our salvation. But the primary message of the Gospel is that God is reclaiming and redeeming His creation from Satan and rebellion against His authority. Whatever God might have done for Cornelius' destiny, His full salvation came by His being welcomed into the kingdom of heaven on earth, by the invitation to submit himself to Christ's rule and reign. This theme of Christ's role in the redemption of the world is very much the theme of Peter's sermon. It is interesting that what Peter preaches here is more like his other sermons to Jews than later sermons that Paul preached to Gentiles, but that's likely because Cornelius was not a pagan and would thereby appreciate the same reasoning and authority that the Jews would. Here is the sermon beginning in verse 36. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. This is Peter's expression for the gospel. The word or teaching which God gave first to the Jews through Jesus' own earthly ministry. Cornelius has already been willing to listen to the children of Israel and learn about God from them. And Peter says that what he has to share is a continuation of that truth which Cornelius had already accepted. He describes the message of Jesus as peace. What must that have meant to this soldier in the Roman legions? Did he realize that through his justification with God, he would be brought into a kingdom not of this world, and called on to beat his sword into a plowshare, and his spear into a pruning hook, and to learn war no more? In the parentheses, Peter inserts, He is Lord of all. This message was sent to the Jews but it is destined for all nations. Verses 37-38 That word, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. These are the principal facts of Jesus' life and ministry. He was preceded by the work of John the Baptist, He was known for good works and miraculous manifestations of power over nature, sickness, and evil spirits, and that these miracles were evidence to those who know the true God that God was with him. Or to use the language of Peter from an earlier sermon, Acts 2.22, God was attesting him, marking him out as his man. And Peter says that these things were all known to Cornelius. He seems to assume this on the basis that The news of these things had gone out through the whole land and had certainly reached a man like this who took a special interest in the affairs of the Jews. Verse 39. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly not to all the people but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him, after he rose from the dead. Peter says, the things you have heard are true. Jesus really did these things, and I saw it, along with several others. It's interesting that in keeping with his regular preaching, he lays the charge of killing Jesus to the Jews, rather than taking the opportunity to indict the Romans, which might have made the charge more impactful to Cornelius himself, but I think there's a reason for this. Cornelius had up to this time received his religious education from the Jews, who he came to regard as the worshippers of the true God. But for some reason, he had resisted becoming a full participant in their society. And now he is discovering that the truths he learned through Israel were never for Israel alone, and in fact some in Israel had rejected them. But though the Jews rejected him, God raised him up. And Peter offers, in proof of that remarkable proposition, which might have been even more remarkable to a man raised in the worldview of Greco-Roman paganism, some of the incontrovertible evidence which God had supplied him and the other apostles. Verses 42 through 43. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Here is Peter's summary and interpretation of the Great Commission. However, in this place, Peter says, he commanded us to preach to the people. And the word for the people is laos. We noted earlier that this word seems to be Luke's word of choice to speak of the Jewish people in particular. See, for example, the New American Standard Version in Acts 10 and verse 2. In fact, Jesus had commanded them to preach to all nations in all the world. But Perhaps Peter is here implying that he now sees that the people who God is calling to himself through the Messiah are not merely the Jews, but those of every nation. In other sermons, Peter focuses on the present reign of Christ at the right hand of God, but here he goes to the end result of that reign. Jesus is the one who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead, That will be his position at the end. Then what is his position now? He is king of kings and lord of lords, the holder of all authority in heaven and on earth. And if you want to receive a good judgment from him in the future, you must submit yourself to his judgments in the present. Verse 43. To him all the prophets witness. Peter does not quote any Old Testament scripture in this sermon. But in this statement, he declares that the overarching message of the Old Testament supports all of his points and propositions, that through his name, by his work, and under his rule, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. In Acts, believing in Jesus is synonymous with giving your allegiance to him as king. We've seen over and again that it includes much more than a mental acknowledgement of propositional truth. But the real key term in this verse is whoever, whoever of all flesh, of any nation, of every creature. Because according to God's eternal purpose, Christ is Lord of all. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the Scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the Eleventh Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at TulsaCHURCHOFCHRIST at gmail.com or visit TulsaCHURCHOFCHRIST.com.
0: From all the dark places of earth, heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly the voice of salvation awakes every nation come over and help us to cry the kingdom is spreading oh tell ye the story god's better exalted shall be the earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea with praising and singing and jubilant ringing their arms of rebellion cast down at last every nation the lord of salvation with glory their effort shall crown the kingdom is spreading O, oh tell ye the story god's banner exalted shall be The earth shall be full of His knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.